purpose, identity, direction. These are nebulous thoughts that we find hard to pin down as humans. But if there's one thing I've learned over my years in business, if you don't have purpose, if you don't have your identity, if you don't know where you're going, it's hard to connect with the people you want to connect with to build your business. For me, when purpose, when identity connected, when I worked out what I was doing, why I was doing it, my business took off leaps and bounds. In a very different episode on The Rebel Entrepreneur, join me and Doc G as we talk about purpose, identity, and how to uncover it. The extraordinary belongs to those that create it. Rebelling against business plans and debt, rebelling against what society expects of us to build cool businesses, make money, have fun and do good. Let's create something extraordinary together. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur podcast for a slightly different episode. And I have with me Doc G. Doc G of the Earn and Invest podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I am so excited to be here. And I'm I'm excited to be part of a slightly different episode. That sounds real exciting. Well, it's definitely different. So the theme of our podcast is entrepreneurship. Uh, but obviously money is a part of entrepreneurship because we have to make money for the business to survive, to buy pizza and to live a happy life. That's like part of it. And we've been on your podcast talking about entrepreneurship because it does fit with financial independence. And there's this kind of mix of the two subjects that's actually sort of coming through in my head as a actually is a really good way of getting to your life and maybe use a job to get to financial independence and then entrepreneurship is something you try afterwards maybe it's the route to get there uh we had brad from choose fi on the show talking about his route to financial independence and he he had a job as an accountant but then he built a series of successful businesses alongside making money which turbocharged his journey led to choose fi which is what he's actually been doing in financial independence um so it's quite an interesting crossover subject here have you ever thought of being an entrepreneur doc g do you see yourself as one what are your thoughts so I've seen myself as an entrepreneur throughout my career. It's a funny thing. So I am a trained physician. I've been practicing medicine, you know, since my 30s when I got out of medical school. But when I was in medical school, I went to Northwestern University and they had a combined MD, MBA or business program. And all it would add was an extra year to my schooling. So at the time I was kind of like, there's no way I want to do this. I don't want to go into business. I want to be a doctor. And my <laughs> wife looked at me and she's like, no, you have an entrepreneurial mind. You should do this. Kellogg School of Business is one of the premier business schools in the United States. And of course I passed on it years later. I look back and say, you know what? I might've really enjoyed that. Now we all know you don't have to go to business school to be an entrepreneur. But I found ways of being an entrepreneur within medicine. Um, I own my own private practice. So one thing I did was I worked for someone else for quite a while, but eventually started running my own business. And that was the second half of my medical career. But in there, I had small little businesses and side hustles um, that I ran from time to time. In fact, when I was in residency, I bought and sold artwork. And I did that for a few years and <laughs> bought and sold hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of paintings. Um, I would call myself a good enough entrepreneur. Um, I always enjoyed entrepreneurship so enough that I could do things that were fun for me, that made a little money, that I grew and learned from. But I was never the kind of all-out entrepreneurship for entrepreneurship. I didn't want to have a business, run a business to make millions of dollars for doing that business. It was more something I like to do on the side it was fun to augment my income, but was never maybe my my sole goal. 
Well, I think the sole goal of building and exiting from millions is a fairly erroneous one anyway, because the number of entrepreneurs that actually achieve building a business, get it to the point where it operates without them and then sell it for multi-millions and that's their end goal. Like what percentage of entrepreneurs actually achieve that? I think it's it's tiny. I see entrepreneurship more of a journey than an end point you get to. What's really refreshing to me, and I definitely encountered this very much in writing my book as well as being a podcast host, is it's more often that we figure out our finances, have the space and room in life to start really thinking about what our purpose and identity and meaning are. And we start pursuing those things, and those things lead to entrepreneurship and business. We actually find that in being our best selves, so to speak, we get creative and start providing goods and services from our heart, and those things end up serving other people. And so you might not have started with this idea of being a quote-unquote business person, but I think when we start thinking about what really gets us going in life, it eventually leads to business opportunities. I love that. I love that. And I guess like slightly different, but kind of similar. One of the sayings that I love if is you can have anything you want in life if, asterisks, you help enough other people get what they want in life. And like that asterisk at the end is the really important bit. And it's fascinating when you say about like tuning in with your passion and what you want to do and your energy because that then leads to you doing things in the world that add value to other people and I think that's the true route to entrepreneurial success when you can charge for that yeah and I think you know the the end point of pursuing your own purpose and identity ends up being connections and I think so connections funnels from purpose and identity so when you start figuring out who you are and what's important to you you all of a sudden start building community around you. You connect to people who jive off of those similar things that you do. Um, and that leads to personal opportunities. It leads to business opportunities. And ultimately, it leads to growth, right? That's how we grow. You grow by getting out there and trying things and doing things and meeting people. Absolutely. So let, let's take a step back to where we started. Naturally, you've just published or you're just publishing your book, Taking Stock, which is a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth and living a regret-free life. And it, like that really caught my attention, the regret-free life bit. And you've spent some years helping people to die and I find that fascinating because like, they must say similar things by the end of like, I wish I'd done this. Because the regret is the wish I'd done this, isn't it? That's the kind of regret pre piece. And I find that fascinating because I'd love the entrepreneurship audience that listen to this, the incredible audience that listen to this, that hear this piece and hopefully inspire them to get out there and run more mini experiments, do more things. So... What leads to a regret-free life? What leads to that end point of like, oh, I'm happy if I go now. I've, I've had a good time. You, do you know what I mean? Did you meet many of those people who've said, okay, it's my time. I'm happy. I've, you know, I've, I've lived. Let me answer that a roundabout way by talking about how the idea for this book came along I've walked this interesting tightrope of being interested in personal finance and financial independence, looking at how we build a financial framework to do kind of what we want to do. That That's always been one side of my life. The other side is as I honed down my life as a doctor and stopped doing the things I didn't like about medicine, what I really loved was doing hospice work, which meant that I was spending a lot of time with people while they were dying, talking about what was important to them. So in a sense, when I went to write this book, I was looking at who are the big influencers in my life. And I could look at these people from the financial independence world, people like Vicki Robin, who wrote Your Money or Your Life. And then I could look at these people from the death and dying world. Um, 
people who had looked at what it feels like to go through that process. I'm thinking of Bronnie Ware and the five regrets of the dying. So I had these two disparate information points, these two big things that affected me. And as I started taking care of the dying myself, I started seeing, oh, these aren't two separate worlds. They actually mesh well together. So you asked, you know, what does it feel like when you're dealing with the dying to talk of regrets? And do some people come to that point where they're like, oh, I'm either ready or I've lived a good life or I'm content? Actually, part of the process of helping people experience life while they're waiting to die, because we don't we don't help them die. We actually help them experience as comfortable a life as possible while they're waiting to die, meaning we take care of symptoms. But a lot of it is also taking care of people's psychological needs. And a big part of that is something called the life review. Mm. So people tell us, and we go through a series of questions. This can be done by a doctor or a chaplain or a nurse or social worker. But we sit with people and ask them a series of questions that helps them review their life a little bit. Who were they? What was important to them? What things did they accomplish? What didn't they accomplish? Um, what were their regrets? What did they have time to change in the next two months or three months or six months? And so it gives people a good chance to either come to terms with the life they had and be content with it, or if there's time to maybe do a few actions like call that person they were in the midst of a fight with and talk it, talk it out, it gives them a chance to maybe work on coming to some conclusions before they die. So yes, some people are content. Some people lived a life that it fulfilled their sense of purpose, identity, and connection. So they were living out their best self throughout. Some people didn't, but then can come to terms with that at the end. And then some people can do some of those last few things of importance before they die. What I think is magical about dealing with people in this situation is when you see the amazing improvements, when you see the amazing calmness it causes in people's lives when they start thinking about these things and get to some comfort level with how they've lived their life, it's pretty amazing to start thinking about doing the same thing with them when they're much younger and not dying. So if this is something we do with someone in the last six months of their life, think about what if we did this with people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and take in all the powerful improvements it causes when people are dying and start bringing those things into people's lives when they're young and healthy, but yet still have a lot of these big life questions like what is meaningful for me and how do I pursue it? Okay. Like, I love this. You've got me. You have my full attention. <laughs> I've got a question and then a thought. The thought is like, I'm here. Do the life review with me now. I'm 40. Like, how? Well, I'm not. I'm like nearly 44, but let's not go there. Um, like, let's do, run me through that. And the question before that is, what kind of actions do people end up taking after this? Because I think that's really interesting. Like you've got limited time left. What kind of actions do people end up taking at the end? So I think that's a, a fascinating question. Whether we do a life or review or not, that's something that really should be spent with hours of sitting and really reflecting on. on you mean you can't things, do it in 10 minutes with me? It it probably wouldn't be fair <laughs> fair to you nor you, nor your audience, but what what changes do people make? Okay, so I can give you some good interesting examples, and and let me preface by the fact that when I give examples from the book, all of the examples from the book, the details have been changed, um, the specifics have been changed, but the ideas are the same. So we change the names, we change everything because I don't want anyone to be able to actually identify someone from the book. Um, for instance, I have had a patient who, when they found out they were going to die, they were mobile enough and had enough energy that they had been putting off taking a bunch of trips their whole life. They never had enough money. They never had enough time. And all of a sudden, when this gentleman found out he was dying, I would call to make a follow-up appointment, our nurses would, and he'd be out of town. Like once we called and he was at Mardi Gras. <laughs> the guy literally took three or four different vacations in the last few months of his life. The idea was that he 
had always had his bag packed but had never used it. Mm. And so in those last few months, he finally gave himself permission to do something he always had wanted to but had never done. I've sat with patients when they've called, for instance, I sat with a woman who had leukemia who called an ex-husband who she hadn't talked to in 15 years because he had cheated on her. She was pregnant. She had a miscarriage. Their marriage had taken a wrong turn. He had walked in. She had walked in to find him cheating on her, and she ended the marriage right there. They had no kids. There was nothing stopping them from not being married anymore. And as she got closer and closer to death, she realized that she had never forgiven him for that and never really taken any responsibility for the part of the problems in the relationship that she was involved with. So no, she hadn't pushed him to cheat on her, but there were problems in the relationship. They were under a huge amount of stress because they couldn't have children. She then suddenly got pregnant and miscarried. And I was in the room when she actually called her ex-husband up and said, you know what? I forgive you. And I also ask for your forgiveness because clearly we were both going through a lot and I wasn't always emotionally present either. And so think about as you're getting to your deathbed, what it would mean to resolve some issues like that. I once took care of a woman who was a grandmother who lived through the depression and we found when we did her life review that she had significant fear and worry about the well-being of her children and grandchildren economically. This was someone who had money hidden all over her house because she was never sure if there would be a time of scarcity. And when this came out in her life review, she gave us permission to discuss it with her children. And her children actually brought their financial plans over and said, like, look, Grandma, here is a 529 plan that we already set up for our child so they will have enough money for college. And so this, it started a discussion in which the grandparent who grew up through the depression was given the opportunity to see that she would be able to die and her kids and grandkids would be fine economically, something that had always worried her for herself. And then when she had children and grandchildren, she had transferred that worry to them. In a sense, it gave her permission to die and know that her job was done and everyone would be okay. Well, I think that's really interesting because she's got permission to actually do her job. And it's almost like she needed this thing to happen and the life of you to happen to know what she really wanted was financial security for her kids because that's what she didn't have. So she had permission. And I think this is fascinating because I say to people all the time, what are you waiting for? Like, what are you waiting for? What needs to happen? Because people need to have a heart attack to start eating salads. They need to be told by a doctor that they've got so many months to go on trips. They need like, they need to get fired to be able to start a business. They've been thinking about it for decades. This is, this is me. I've been thinking about it for decades. And then I got fired and that was what prompted me to do it. But why was I waiting to get, fired and like a tiny little other version of this is like the annual review why do we wait until new years to make changes in our life and go i'm not standing for this anymore i'm gonna do this different thing and we only do it at new years why can't we do that on may the 3rd or july the 4th why did i don't know why i picked that day it just came to my head but you know what i mean a random day why does it why do we have to wait till the end of the year and I guess we don't so my question to you is how can I and the people listening to this podcast get on with our lives and have this feeling without actually having to have someone tell us we're dying to be able to actually fulfill our purpose and do what we need to do like how do we do that well I think that actually it's really important to come to terms with this idea that life is finite. So, you know, a term I use in the book often or or saying I use in the book often is that we're dying from the day that we're born. And that's not meant to paralyze us. It's actually meant to give us permission to realize that life is finite. And by realizing life is finite, we then have to say what's really important and how do I get there? So, 
I think the reason why we always put things off, and in fact, a big reason why we look at things like money and make that kind of a goal in our life instead of using it as a tool is because it's much easier than contemplating the more ephemeral and difficult things like what is my purpose? <laughs> Who am I? What's my identity? What are those important connections in life that I have to have? It's really hard to do that. So instead, we go for the low-hanging fruit, which is the simple stuff, the stuff that's much easier to answer. It's not easy, per se, to become financially independent, but it certainly is easy to figure out a path there. And so we like to focus on those low-hanging fruit because it's safer. And it, it, it allows us not to come to terms with the fact that, yes, we will die one day. Yes, our time is finite. And if we don't start working on that important stuff now, we may never be able to. Um, so I think the first step is to recognize that if not now, then when? It's time to begin thinking about the hard stuff now. That's also a dangerous question because I start to ask, if not me, then who? <laughs> you know, when you stand up to things and other people don't stand up to them and I'm like, someone's got to stand up to this stuff. So we need to do this. We need to choose. We need to get on with things. That's the kind of idea. If not now, when? One of the things I've noticed about the financial independence world is a lot of people get a crash when they reach their number. So they hit their number, then they go, okay, I can quit my job, I can do whatever. They're sat on a stained brown couch wondering what to do with their life. And it's almost like it brings a vacuous hole, an emptiness that comes. And the number is never the answer, never the answer. And I actually think it's a, a misnomer that quitting work will make you happy. Like quitting work might remove something that you don't enjoy, but it doesn't actually make happiness. And I think a huge amount of people have a fall when they hit their number, which I haven't had yet. And I say yet because I don't want to gloat. Like, <laughs> so it might well come, who knows? But I had my fall when I started entrepreneurship and I was a bit lost with what am I doing? How am I making money? What's my purpose? I thought my purpose for a while was to fix bad PowerPoint presentations uh, because <laughs> they were the scourge of the earth. And they, I still, <laughs> I still hate them, don't get me wrong, and I still work on doing nice ones. But that wasn't my true purpose. And is there actually such a thing as a true purpose? I don't think so. The current purpose, help people build businesses and make money without debt. The current purpose help people fix their finances through rebel finance school. Like that's the current purpose, but that's just the one I've landed on. Um, what am I trying to ask you with this long segue? The audience are probably going, shut up, Alan, ask your question. <laughs> He's more interesting than you. Um, you have something to say. I don't even need to ask a question. I, You're just I, here. I do. I do. So I think this is a major tenant actually of the book. Our biggest mistake is we try to do the money first, but the problem is money isn't a goal, it's a tool, but we treat it as a goal, and therefore when we reach it, we're lost, because all money is is a tool, and so you've built lots of tools, you have all the materials you need to build something, but you don't know what you want to build. <laughs> a major tenet of the book is really, we need to start with purpose, identity, and connections, figure out what we want to build, and then we can look at our financial framework and create it in such a way to support that home we're trying to build. So purpose, identity, and connections, you got to start there. And so many of us don't, I personally didn't, and if you don't, then yes, you're in for reckoning when you meet this huge quote-unquote goal that you thought was so important of net worth, and yet you have no idea who you are, what you want, or what has meaning in your life. And then you have to go back and do the work that I'm trying to get people to do in the first place. Because the only importance of money or financial independence or a financial framework is actually to support you to do those other things, to figure out your purpose, identity, and connections. 
Otherwise, it doesn't have much meaning yet. Fascinating. Okay. I love this. How? How do I discover my purpose and my identity? Who am I? Where am I going? Help me figure that out in the next three minutes, 47 seconds, please. So there are <laughs> definitely exercises in the book to do this, but purpose actually is fairly straightforward. And here's a lesson right from the dying. Picture yourself. Take a moment. It might be a little disturbing, but picture yourself lying on your deathbed and thinking, I wish I had the courage to do, to say, to connect with whatever comes next is the beginning of your purpose. So it's a really great thought experiment to imagine yourself getting a terminal diagnosis. What would you do with that six months? How would you spend that precious time? Those are the kind of things that start to build a sense of purpose. And you might not know what that is in the beginning. It may take a lot of trial and error. Purpose can change from time to time. Mm -hmm. When I was young and my father died and he was a physician and I wanted to be just like him, the purpose for the beginning part of my life for the first few decades was becoming a doctor. I eventually became a doctor, started to burn out and realized that I had a whole nother purpose out there, something that I was very attached to, which was communicating writing and podcasting and public speaking, something I had never imagined as a kid, but fit me way more comfortably. But I didn't know that till I was older. Purpose can change. Purpose can be fluid. Purpose can be important to the world. I want to save the environment and the whales, or it can be selfish. I want to write the great American novel. It can be long-term. I want to run a marathon, which I think is going to take me the next 20 years. Mm. Or it can be short-term. I want to get published in the New York Times, so I'm going to spend the next year figuring out how to do that. The only thing that it matters is that we need to start spending our time on things that we will regret on our deathbed if we don't have the courage to try. Now, you have to imagine I didn't say succeed at, because mm. whether you succeed at these things or not is probably not nearly as important People generally don't regret on their deathbed that they tried really hard, gave it their all, and didn't accomplish the thing. What they regret is that they didn't try to accomplish the thing. So I think that's a good way to start thinking about purpose. Identity is the next thing. I like to have people do the exercise of, of repeating the phrase, I am, and filling the blank, and doing it over and over and over again, like many, many times. Usually when you start, like someone like me will say, I am a doctor. So a lot of times we start with our profession, <laughs> right? Everyone's trained to do that. I'm a businessman. That's man. what we do. I'm a manager. And, I'm a... Yeah. And so then I say, well, take the next step. So after all those things, what are you? And then most people jump to, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a husband, right? We start talking about relationships, after that, we may jump into accomplishments. I'm a Plutus Award winner for my Earn and Invest podcast. I'm a this, I'm a that. You start listing out your resume. But when you go deeper and go farther and exacerbate all those kind of simple things, you start getting into maybe a little bit more of who you really are. Like when I think of myself, I'm an empathizer, right? I'm someone who feels deeply other people's pain and happiness and joy and compassion. I'm a podcaster. Like I like to have deep conversations with people and record them. I'm a public speaker. I like to get up on stage and talk about important stuff. Eventually I found that the identity that I thought I'm a doctor, which never fit me comfortably. Like I, I never felt comfortable in doctor's lounges. I'd go to a party and I would just shy away from new people because I was afraid they were going to ask me what I did for a living. I had a little bit of shame and embarrassment about being a doctor, which is funny. And it had nothing to do with the profession because being a doctor is a very noble profession. Mm. My shame and embarrassment was I was clinging to an identity on the outside that didn't fit my identity on the inside, which was a writer and a communicator and a podcaster and a public speaker, all these things that I was passionate about. 
but I wasn't living that life. And it took me a long time to shed off that physician identity, which never fit me very comfortable, comfortably, and start embracing the identity of the communicator, which once I did, and in this case, it happened to be t- tied to personal finance because that's where I really was able to start living that out. I found that I naturally, A, identified in a way that felt comfortable, but then B, was able to latch on to that third part of the equation, which was connection. I was all of a sudden connecting with people on a level I had never connected before. So I would go to a conference and meet complete strangers and find that after talking to them for an hour or two, I had formed closer bonds than after four years of medical school with my fellow students. And so purpose, identity, and connections, they all come together. They all flow from each other. Often we have to struggle a little bit to figure out what that purpose is, figure out who we are, how do we identify, but that eventually leads to connections. And those are the things that should be our goals that we then build a financial framework to support. Uh talk about a deep conversation you're living up to your identity right at the moment uh this is not simple to figure out i i just want to back you up ever so slightly for everyone listening to this when i truly found my purpose at rebel business school of changing the way entrepreneurship is taught stopping people from taking loans because it helped them showing that you can build a business without money and that was when I really started to connect with people. That's when that business took off because I started to get people who supported me, sponsored me, worked with me, wanted to work with me. When I turned up at a Chautauqua event and I talked about building a business with no debt, that was when the people around me, they connected with me. But I'd found my purpose I was living my identity very, very strongly. Like that I was congruent. Have you heard of this word congruent? Yes. Yeah. It's like when everything lines up, my identity lined up with my purpose, everything lined up and I confidently communicated what I was doing because I believed in it 100%. And I think my early days in business, like it didn't quite line up. Those things didn't match and it took a long time to find it. it took a long time. I love the tips you've given, and I just want to highlight those as homework for everyone listening to this, because you know we love homework here at Rebel Entrepreneur. Um, first piece of homework you set us was picture yourself lying on your deathbed and thinking, I wish I had the courage to, to do this, to say this, to connect with this. So I want you to do this like I wish you had the courage to do this now and (laughs) when you were saying that I was like I wish I had the courage to really press out and fight in the world anti-debt I wish I had the courage to I put swear attack the banks because I think they force loans on people in different ways like there's some stuff for me here in doing this and I think this is a really useful exercise for everyone to do. Do you have anything to add about that exercise? Because it's your exercise. I've just paraphrased it for everyone listening. No, that that's exactly it. And and in the book, I actually run through a series of life review questions. It's like a seven or eight question form that will take you through the process of running through it yourself in a more formalized way. Because doing this kind of work, I think, actually takes some time. Mm -hmm. You should give yourself a few hours. You should be in a quiet place. You shouldn't have your electronics on. It's something that actually I I suggest doing sometimes an hour, maybe on two or three days in a week's time. So you give it some time to really marinate. Um, But yes, that's the essence of, of of the exercise. I love that advice. It's one of my favorite things to do is to get a question like this and to journal about it. I love to go to a cafe. I love to have a a fancy coffee and stick my headphones on, normally with some Marvel Cinematic Universe music (laughs) because it doesn't have words and it makes me inspired. And then I journal about this stuff. And I think it's such a powerful thing to do. And for everyone listening to this, like, do it now about your business 
I wish I'd had the courage to do this for my business. I wish I'd had the courage. Like we've been going through the coaching series with Christina and Adam, and a lot of it is about sales. I wish I'd had the courage to properly learn sales. I wish I'd had the courage to get over this like view of sales and get out there and grow my business. I think this is where the real the real energy to do these things because it's not easy to go out there and break through this and sell yourself and create, you know, create that energy and connection to sell what you're doing. You've got to find it and if it's truly identified with your pur- purpose, I think that's that's the way to find some juice and some charge. It helps remove the noise. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that dealing with the dying has helped me realize is, you know, it gets you to that place where all of a sudden you can turn off the noise and say, no, Mm. I'm dying now. I don't have time for that noise anymore. Why don't we do that at other times in our life? When we're looking at our business, for instance, why can't we step out of the noise for a moment and say, no, this is important to me and I need to do this. And I think that's, again, we, we talk a lot about permission. I think the stories and experience of the dying give us that permission to do this in other places in our life. I think it's also when you're young, you feel like you have unlimited time. Like I mm-hmm. remember when I was young, I felt like I was invincible, Doc G. And I've had yeah. a few experiences over the last month where mortality has... Uh, come into my world. Bogota tried to eat me alive. Um, A manhole cover opened up beneath me and tried to swallow me. Uh, And then I got wedged in with a concrete iron manhole cover clipped into my leg, trapping me from falling further and from getting out. Uh, So I had a moment of what's going on. And then our friends tell us, oh yeah, this happens in, in Colombia. Like occasionally kids fall in and die. <laughs> like, and, whoa. And it's the perfect, I mean, I hate to to bring it back, but it's the perfect reason why we can't do money first and then purpose, identity, and connections later. My dad died at 40. Like you, if you put off the important work, you may never get the chance. And so it's a morbid thought, but it makes some sense that we learn how to live now. <laughs> not and not wait till later all the time. Like I've just written down in my notes, what is important to me? Learn how to live now. How do I? I think I'm I'm good at this. I think I'm good at living now because I do make things happen and I do live. But there's always a new level. How do I learn to live now? And you may not have an answer to this. You might not know, but I like. Yeah. How do I live? So there's there's a continuous tension in our lives if we're thoughtful people between YOLO, you only live once, and deferred gratification. Mm. If we're thoughtful people, we're always walking that line, right? Because we want to enjoy the here and now. We want to use money what it was intended for, which is to enjoy ourselves. We want to live in the moment. On the other hand, We want to be able to pay for our own retirement. We want to invest and take advantage of compounding and maybe even create a legacy for our loved ones or children or grandchildren or who knows what. So there's this continuous tension. And so I think the answer to that question is we learn how to balance YOLO and deferred gratification in our lives in a unique way that serves specifically us. And so that's how we do it. And this gets back to what is important to you? How do we live that both today as well as plan for tomorrow? And then we kind of at the end have to ask ourselves, well, what do we think is in the odds? So my dad thought he was going to die young. He told my mom when he married her, I don't think I'm going to live long So he thought the odds for him were that he wasn't going to live long. So he really pushed the live for today in front of the saving for retirement. Because although he took care of us and had life insurance and all that stuff, he didn't think he was going to have a long retirement. So he pushed a little more on living for today. I, on the other hand, have always felt that I live into my 80s and 90s. 
I'm not as I wasn't worried, especially at the beginning of my career, so much as living for that moment as I was concerned about making enough money to put it into investments to compound so that I could live a long time and never run out of money. So it's a complicated question you've asked, but my answer would be pretty much the three tenets of the book, which is figure out what your purpose and meaning are, then build a financial framework that fits into that, and then last, decide whether you're worried about running out of life first or running out of money later, (laughs) and then making financial decisions based on that. So that's kind of like the framework. And we can go into detail about each more. We've talked a lot about purpose and identity. We could talk more if you'd like about kind of the different ways to build that financial framework. And the last part is is pretty much self-evident. Obviously, if you think you're going to live a long time, you might be more aggressive in saving now. Whereas if you are worried that you don't have a long time to live, you might want to have a much bigger YOLO fund and maybe just be safe by having a smaller financial independence fund. I got a couple of thoughts for you, which I'd love to hear. Number one is I had a friend who their experience was that a lot of people around them died young. So that was their experience. So they were set to 100% you only live once. And they did that at the complete expense of their finances, their future and everything. They were like 100% down that way. And that really messed up their finances and their future and caused arguments and all of that sort of stuff. And they ended up marrying someone who was the other side who would defer all of their gratification. And that was their biggest problem and probably why they ended up together. So (laughs) that balance there is really fascinating and just, yeah. And I think, no, you reply to that and I will hold my second thought because I think there's another one there. So we're really great at seeing extremes, but we're not as good at seeing shades of gray. So this gets back to that question. What do you think is more probable, that you'll die early and not enjoy whatever riches you've saved up or that you will live long and run out of money? If you're like this person who truly feels like I'm going to die young, which was exactly my father, that doesn't mean that you should be financially irres- you should be financially irresponsible. But it does mean that when you're allocating your assets, I think everyone should look to be financially independent. We can all build a financial independence framework by earning, saving, and investing. But how much you save and invest may really have to do with how soon you think you're going to die. If you think you're going to die soon, maybe you save only 10%. The other 50% you put into a YOLO fund and you really enjoy yourself now. And then the last bit you use to pay off whatever expenses you have, if you are right and you die young, then you've been really maxing out that YOLO fund and you lived it up before you died. If you're wrong, then yes, it's going to take you longer to get to financial independence. You've only been saving 10%. You might not get there till you're 65, but you know what? You've been living a great life YOLOing like crazy. You probably don't mind working till you're 65 because you're enjoying yourself. So I think it's a win-win if you see that shade of gray and if you still work on that financial independence framework. But again, it's a matter of degrees. So someone who truly feels like they're going to die young just doesn't need to save as much, but they still need to save and they still need to build a framework to support themselves. And so I think that's the real idea. I love that. Love the framework. Love what you built there. Something that struck me as you spoke is a lot of this takes the assumption that it takes money to YOLO and it takes money to like my, you only live once is to go to Vegas, to live it up, to have the big party, to have the, whatever the food, all of that stuff. Whereas actually in business, if we were applying, you only live once to business, you would make the phone call to that big client and it doesn't cost you any money. You would throw all in on the marketing and you would ring the editor of the New York Times about what you're doing and you would chase him once an hour for an hour every day until you got them. Like you only live once attitude doesn't have to cost you money. And it, it, my wife is now screaming in my ears. It's not binary. 
it's not either spend money or have fun. <laughs> it's not either spend money or deferral gratification. We can we can apply these principles to building the business of our dreams and the life of our dreams. It doesn't have to cost money, does it? It doesn't. The way I look at money is money is potential energy, right? And potential energy helps you you have better use of your time. And so that's what I think about it is. So it is true that some of the most important and best things in life don't cost money, but if you want to have the time to do those, you might need some potential energy, for instance, to take time off of work to pay your expenses or to hire someone to mow your lawn using that potential energy to do those things just frees up some space and so to speak time so that you can do it. It also can be potential energy that turns into courage, right? So you're talking about calling up that editor at the New York times. Well, you know, nine out of 10 people might do that, not do that because they're work for someone and they're afraid they're going to get fired. If they make a fool of themselves, Mm -hmm. if you have a lot of that potential energy, which comes from money, you may have the power to say, okay, I could get fired from my job for doing something that might make a fool of myself, but I also could be stupendously successful. If I'm not successful, I have enough potential energy to support myself and to be okay. So I think of it in a lot of ways is that way. Money is a tool. It's just one of many tools. We have tons of different tools. We have our compassion. We have our empathy. We have our time. We have our caring and respect. We have our innate abilities. Um, all of those can help us build a life of purpose and identity. Um, we need to put money back where it belongs, which is one of many tools. Uh, I just like having as much of that tool available because it eases some of the other things. It it allows me to decide what I'm going to do with that precious thing called time, which we can't control, we can't produce, we can't modify it literally is there and there's nothing we can do to change time except how we choose to spend that time. When I say spend, spend's a bad word. What we choose to actually do while that time passes. And so that's what potential energy gets us. And that's why I think we spend a lot of time talking about money. Um, but it's just one of, of, of several assets we have to put it into financial terms. So let me... I'm going to ask you for some direct help, which I think could help everyone. (laughs) I feel like as I look at my to-do list, I look at my project list, any one of those items could be a lifelong project. Like destroying financial illiteracy is probably bigger than my life. I'm 43. I've got a few years left. I'd like to think I could get it done. But then if you add in fighting debt, changing the way entrepreneurship is taught, launching a book, going to Disney World with Katie, like any one of these projects, maybe not the Disney one, but any one of the other projects could be a lifelong mission. How does this help me focus my energy of where I'm going and what I'm I'm doing. It's funny you say that, and one thing comes immediately to mind, an exercise that people out there can do. Write down all those major goals on one sheet of paper, right? And then on the next sheet of paper, or you could even look at your daily planner, look at what you've spent the last 48 hours doing and compare what you've spent the last 48 <laughs> hours doing to that sheet of paper where you just wrote down all those important things. The reason why I say doing this is at some point we actually have to audit how we're spending our time. And so all those things you just mentioned are really deep down. It's purpose and identity work, right? What you've done is you've made a list of all those things that really feel to you like they define your purpose and identity. Let's take an audit and see how much of our time we actually spend in our normal average day doing things that further those causes. So that'd be the first thing I think we should do. It doesn't necessarily answer your question, but I think it's an important perspective for us to tackle that question. I love that. Now the next part is, what I hear you saying is, I'm a deeply passionate man who has lots of things that interest me. Maybe there's just too much here and there's you know, there's no way I could do all of this. There is. The world's too big. There's too much. So I have a few different answers to this. 
One is what I truly believe after doing all this work, what I truly believe happiness is, is something I call the climb, right? It's making slow and steady progress to something that you feel has major meaning and purpose. That's the climb. It's not getting there. In fact, I would say it's really important that part of the climb is that you enjoy the way, right? So it's doing something you enjoy, which has deep meaning and purpose to you in which you feel like you're making progress. That's it. To me, that actually is the answer. What is happiness? Happiness is being engaged in the climb in a meaningful way. So what you're saying is you've got lots of climbs there. and There's too many mountains. Could, There's too many mountains. Well, so I think you have to decide what feels more like success to you. Mm -hmm. If we define the climb as the important thing, you could have 10 different climbs and you might only make 1% improvement on them each year. And to you, that might be enough. And that might be success. So having too many mountains might be okay as long as you can consistently feel like every once in a while, I'm going to chip away at each one and make 1% progress. And I love the process. I love making progress. I feel like I'm doing something meaningful on each of these different climbs. And I'm okay that I'm making, not making 10% or 15% progress. I'm making 1%. And that's okay. That's one answer. Or you might look at your own personality and say, you know what? I'm the kind of guy who really wants to make 10 or 15%. So I'm going to have to whittle this list down. Instead of 10, I'm going to want to take a bigger bite and make more progress. So maybe I'm going to focus on these three or four and I'm going to let some of those others go because I feel like I can make a greater amount of progress. And to me, that has more meaning and purpose than doing these 1% chips at many. So it's very individualized and very stylized. I wrote a book, and in some ways I'm defining my book as a money book. The problem with money books is they're fairly prescriptive. Do this, everybody do this, and you will get here. What I'm actually talking about is something that's not prescriptive at all. It really depends on who you are and what brings you a sense of meaning and purpose, and then pursuing it. There's no right or perfect answer. There's only a wrong answer, which is the wrong answer is spending your time doing things you don't like to do on a regular basis without purpose and meaning. That's the wrong answer. There's a million right answers though. And so the idea is to carve out that path that works best for you. It makes me think of something that I repeat at the Rebel Business School, which is fuzzy focus leads to fuzzy results. Split focus leads to split progress. And it does, like there's only so much of you. <laughs> there's only so much of you to go around. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of energy as it feels you do. Uh, but even that has limits at time, especially when I fill down manhole covers. That takes a lot of energy to recover from that <laughs> yes. stuff. You want to avoid those. Yeah, avoid those as best you can. Um, but fuzzy focus leads to fuzzy results. So if I'm doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of the other, I don't make any progress. I think. Your exercise of writing down your major goals on one sheet of paper and then what you did on the last 48 hours on another is really fascinating. I think it could work the other way as well. Because what you actually spend your time on might be a reflection of what your actual purpose is, not the one you've announced to the world on the fancy, like, this is my mission sheet. Because we have a tendency to do what's really important rather than doing what we think is written on the mission sheet. So if you spent your time with your family and not actually worked on the business, that might be telling you your purpose is your family, not the business. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I do another exercise in the book called the reverse lottery test. Ooh. And it, it's it's like the same thing as the exercise with the dying, but it's in, in a much more positive look at it, mm -hmm. right? So the reverse lottery test is imagine that you woke up tomorrow and you won $100 million in the lottery. Go take a look at your schedule from the last week or or maybe your schedule for the upcoming week and start slashing all the things you wouldn't do anymore because money's not an issue. Mm. 
and do that for a few weeks and look at what's left over. And what's left over probably says a heck of a lot about your purpose. Just like what would I regret if I was sitting on my deathbed? You can list those things out. This is the same thing, but in a much more optimistic terms. What would I keep if money was not an issue? And those things probably say a lot about who you are and what's important to you. I love this. Like, I feel like this is <laughs> the episode that is most jammed, packed, full of exercises I actually want people to do. This is phenomenal. Um, thank you for sharing so openly about like the exercises, what you're doing, how you're doing it. Cause I, this is the stuff we really need to think about. Cause I think most of us just operate on autopilot and fly through life without actually thinking about this. And then we wait for the once of the year to go through, Oh, what are my goals with life at the new years? And am I going to do it? Oh, join the gym. That's not really <laughs> you speaking. That's just a forced thing that happens once a year, but proper reflection, proper thinking, I think is so critical. Does that ever come up with the regrets? I wish I thought more about this. I wish I'd put more effort into that stuff. I think it does in terms of the word intention. Uh, I think okay. people say, I wish I was much more intentional, intentional about the way I went about things. Right? So I wish I had my long-term goals in mind when I set out to do things that were important to me. And I think, um, you know, some of that comes with age and wisdom, right? Sometimes you just don't know when you're young. But the goal is to start thinking about the endpoints a little more when you're young and then reverse engineering and working your way back so that you can start doing all those important things now as opposed to waiting till some set point to give yourself permission to start living a life that feels more purposeful. I love that. And I would like to just add to everyone listening to this, my new definition of young is anyone who's still breathing. So if you're <laughs> still breathing, you are young enough to do something about this. Let's get intentional. That feels like the call. That feels like what we need to do is let's get really intentional about where we're going with this. Doc G, you are a legend. I love your podcast. If you've not heard Doc G's podcast, he has a range of episodes where different subjects are debated. He interviews experts. It is about finance and FI stuff, but it's also about so much more. Like, check out the Earn and Invest podcast. Um, and you're also just launching your book. So now's the time. Tell us what the book is. Tell us where it is. I've been invested in this journey watching you come along and I love it. And like, I'm so excited for everyone to get their hands on this. Tell us what the book is and then I'm going to ask everyone to go and get it. So the book is Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life is available August 2nd everywhere you buy books, Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Nobles, especially if you do it online. Uh, it's available everywhere. And this is pretty much a meshing of my financial life as well as my life as a hospice doctor. I found that these two worlds collided in the sense that the dying have a lot to teach us about not only finances, but how we can live a quote-unquote regret-free life. I am so excited to get it out there mm. uh, to hopefully start affecting people's lives. And Alan, thank you very much for your support. Um, Alan, you, were, you and Simon were two of the people I came to immediately when I thought about getting this book to the world. Um, because I so appreciate your thoughts on on marketing and on just creating and putting out there something that is unique to who I am. So you guys have played a great role in that, and I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. I believe in your project. I believe in what you're doing. And I would love to inspire everyone listening to this to start working on purpose and identity and the important stuff now. Don't put it off and it doesn't have to cost money. You can build your business. You can 
bring together your family, you can create something incredible. You just need to start now. That's it. I feel like I've been here too long. I've got I've got stuff to do. I should be doing it. Um, <laughs> you are doing it. You're living it. And that's what we need to do. So if you've been listening to this, now is the time. Now is the time to start. Doc G, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, ideas, energy, and the book. I really appreciate it. It has been a pleasure as always. Thank you. And if you're listening to this, do the exercises, make things happen. Now is the time to start living the life of your dreams. You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a rebel entrepreneur.